0: It doesn't actually matter if you've got three customers or 300 customers an attacker is quite let's call it cost efficient
1: mm-hmm. they're
0: going to find vulnerabilities in an attacker platform with massive bang for their buck so if they can get 100 customers compromised wonderful that's going to be really big payday for them that's why you're seeing all these ransomware attacks it's not about those companies no. the attacker probably didn't care in advance that's right. they just knew the technology was there and they could exploit it
1: Welcome to the Agency Hour podcast, where we help web design and digital agency owners create abundance for themselves, their teams, and their communities. This week, we're joined by the Mary Poppins of security, Laura Bell-Main. Laura has worked with every type of company that you can imagine, large and small, from mum-and-pop stores, companies that take care of the widows of firefighters, to NAB, Lockheed Martin, Prosper, and many more in the financial sector. In this episode, we dive deep into security and discuss the importance of bringing security into your core offering and the reality of trusting the security of SaaS and hosting companies. Everything is not what it seems. We also touch on the tale of Laura getting a book offer in a Mexican restaurant with a mariachi band, why security attacks are not personal, and can and do happen to smaller companies, and how your WordPress plugins may not be enough. It's jam-packed. I'm Troy Dean. Stay with us. And without further ado, please welcome to the podcast, Laura Belmain. Laura, welcome. Thank you
0: so much for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Likewise. Thanks for joining us here on the Agency Hour. Now, this is uh, a, a um, a slight departure, I guess, from our usual programming. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about growth, marketing, hiring people, operations, specifically for the agency business model. For those that don't know you, and I imagine most people in our audience won't be familiar with you and your work, who are you? What do you do and what are you doing here on the agency hour?
0: I know right. I, I'm I, I'm gonna push you all in a little unexpected direction. Um so I am a security specialist. so my my job in the world is to bring security into organizations big and small. Uh, without getting in the way of what they actually want to spend their time on so in its own strange way that we can use security as a tool for growth and for resilience and surviving as organizations so none of that doom and gloom fear stuff much more of that what can we do to really stand out and to make sure that we're growing and using this as a tool in our, our toolbox
1: I just want to give a few. I just want to give our listeners some context here because I personally know if you think security is not important or it won't happen to me, right? I personally know uh, friends of mine who run uh, either software companies or run uh, WordPress plugin companies who have their own checkout mechanism and store thousands of clients' credit cards on file. I know people who have been hacked and who have had data stolen, customer data stolen for ransom. Uh, in Australia, I can't remember the, who it was, but there was a big organization recently, with, like within the last few days yeah. that was targeted. There's been so um, many in Australia. Yeah. it's It's um, been a
0: bad year. It's um, been a
1: bad year. And, and, and my brother, who is a general manager of a large Um, non-profit in Adelaide. He was talking to some colleagues recently in – because they're obviously, you know, aware of this and they have to be ahead of the game with this stuff. Uh, But the cybersecurity team that they were talking to have said that in the last 12 months, cybersecurity attacks in Australia have doubled and uh, that trend looks like it's going to increase because we are, if you don't, you know, realise this in Australia, one of the wealthiest countries on the planet – And we get targeted by people who want to steal data and then show us what's called a proof of life. They show us proof that they have the data and then they demand lots of money. Otherwise, they're going to release that data publicly. So this is not – and I'm not saying this to be – to, you know, scare people into taking action. I'm just letting people know this is a real thing. It does happen. It's happened to friends of mine. We have been very fortunate over the last however many years we've been trading online that has never happened to us. But, uh, you know, you've got to take these things seriously. And so tell me, um, first of all, how, why, why security? Why this? (laughs) Do you have a personal story? Like you obviously at some point when I'm going to spend my life devoted to helping organisations secure their software, why?
0: (laughs) A complete accident, if I'm honest. Um, So um, the two big influences in my life, are my the on the the female side of my family, they're all storytellers. Um, mm. they're the type of people who can sit next to a person on a bus and within three minutes, they've got their life story and been invited to their grandma's birthday party. That's just, <laughs> it's just how they work. Um, mm. and it's beautiful to watch in a slightly weird way. Mm. And my granddad and, and, and a lot of the, the men on my, in my family, just because of, you know, the way that the education worked back then are all engineers. And my granddad mm. used to kind of pull me aside on Saturday and he'd say, Laura, what do you want to build today? I'd be like, oh, cool, let's build stuff. Oh, wow. And he'd just appear with stuff. Now, as an adult, I've learned that he was stealing bits from my mom's and my grandparents' furniture upstairs. <laughs> but what he gave me was this, this sense of creativity, of you could use things in unusual ways, that you could play around with them, and that anything was possible if you would just thought about the problem in a different way. Wow. Now, I eventually became a software developer, and I found that my you know, my enjoyment of looking at problems in strange ways and being the person who was like, oh, all right, there's three buttons on that screen. What happens if I press all of them at once? And Mm -hmm. um, that's really not that helpful in a software team. Um, Mm -hmm. But in security, that's exactly where it starts. It starts with creativity and curiosity. Um, Now, the difference between someone like me who's in security and someone who is, you know, doing crime is that my motivation is helping people. I like finding these things like a puzzle and then fixing them. But there are other people who have the same sort of creative thinking, but they have a motive to, you know, for personal gain or, you know, I want to do this and use it to get wealth or or whatever it is. Um, So, yeah, that's how I ended up there. I essentially moved from software into security. And then over the last 20 years, I've had an amazing career working with Every type of business you can imagine, from tiny, tiny nonprofits who look after the widows of firefighters, right the way up to big name companies like Salesforce. Um, So um, I really have seen every sort of operating model, every sort of kind of culture that security can bring in, uh, the good and the bad.
1: I must say, I, I was checking out, I didn't know much about you and full transparency, you was talking in the green room. You came to us via a podcast booking agency who, who mm-hmm. reached out and suggested that you come in our podcast. Uh, but I, so I was checking you out yesterday because I had no idea who you were and, and I, you've got some pretty impressive client logos on your website, NAB, which is a, the big national Australia bank, Lockheed Martin, Prosper, who are a finance company, is that right, Prosper, mm-hmm. they're a lender, is that right? Yeah. Um, I imagine finance sector security is a big uh, issue which we can talk about. For, for, before we get there, though, how did you – what was your pathway to become a software developer?
0: Um, I needed to get a job when I was 16. I come mm-hmm. from a, a small town that is famous for teenage pregnancy and car theft. Excellent. And, yeah, sounds absolutely, like where, you you it, sounds know, like where and I grew high. up, yes. Aim <laughs> <laughs> And so um, I, I was very lucky. Um, in my hometown, there was one tech employer. That was EDS. And they were doing an apprenticeship scheme. And the interview process was solving puzzles. And so my mom was sick. I needed a job. And I went and solved some puzzles for an hour and ended up as a junior COBOL developer age 16. Um, And then I put myself through night school to get my qualifications and then eventually put myself through university. So
1: um,
0: it was more of a a necessity than it was a choice. I didn't wake up one day and go, yeah, computers are my thing. Uh, But I I just love it. It just speaks to a part of my brain that uh, just loves puzzles.
1: Yeah. There is something, I remember in, when I first moved to Melbourne, there was a company back then, I don't know what they were called now, but back then they were called the Computer Power Training Institute. And they used to run these television commercials and they would invite you to come in and sit and test. And if you pass the test, you would have a pathway to become a software developer. So I went and sat the test and turns out I'm just very good at solving puzzles as well. And, you know, kind of like finding patterns in numbers and here's Mm -hmm. a series of numbers, continue the pattern and And so I blitzed the test and um, got. And I was working a crummy job as a sales rep in the hairdressing industry at that point I was driving around Melbourne selling bloody shampoo and hairspray to hairdressers and it was awful but anyway um they rang me and said look you you're like in the top one percent we want you to come and do the course uh, it's 15 grand to come and do the course I, I didn't have at the time and I c- didn't I couldn't get so I missed out on that opportunity I wonder how different my life would have been if I'd had that formal training but I do remember at the time this is in the late nineties, ninety 97, 98, mm. right? I do remember at the time thinking, "You, ha- this is the future. You have to understand how computers work, otherwise, you're going to be left behind." And and this was when we were accessing the the internet on a you know twenty eight point eight k or a fourteen point four k dial up modem, right? So <laughs> how far things have come. Um, so well done, congratulations for for uh, pursuing that pathway. And then at some point, you, we were talking the green room. You end up consulting with companies before what you've done now which is pivot to an e-learning platform which we'll talk about which is something that's very uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, Talk to me, so you were employed as a software developer. When did you go out on your own as a security consultant?
0: So um, I made the big leap in 2014 so just coming up on 10 years next year Um, and I'd just come back to work after having my first child and I was working for a single organization in the fintech space, and it was great. You know, it paid well. It was a good job. But I was frustrated. Um, I I knew that you could build software really, really fast, and I knew that security was important. But the way that security happened was super, super slow at that point. Yeah. and And it was all about, no, you can't do this. And as somebody who likes creativity and innovation, that was just really grinding with me. And so um, I had about $300 in my bank account. Um, it was really not a great life choice at this point. I had a 10-month-old daughter, and wow. I quit my well-paid job, and I went out looking for my first consultancy clients. And my first wow. client, thankfully, was PushPay. So, um, so yeah, it, it, was, it was a big leap of faith. Um, uh, I literally wheeled my office chair from home down Queen Street in central Auckland to a shared space that had... You know those pallets you get from shipping companies that uh-huh. they're always giving away at the side of the road. Mm-hmm. So the desks were made of those, but they hadn't even bothered sanding them. <laughs> and you had to put uh, a sheet over your desk at the end of the day because it was in the eaves of a building. And overnight, the pigeons would come and roost, <sighs> and you want you had to make sure that you didn't get your computers covered in you know pigeon wow. uh, waste. It, it was oh, you know, one day I'll laugh about it. At the time, it was kind of hard. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, in the first three months though, it was really clear that. There was this massive need for particularly software-led companies who were building software either to sell or to make their lives easier to do security. They really cared, but they needed to be shown how to do it fast and to make those pragmatic choices. And so... That led to a very successful consultancy practice and then um, my first book, Agile Application Security for O'Reilly. And so I I kind of sat at the front of what became DevSecOps and um, the fast-paced security space for software.
1: Wow. What what was your, um, wow? there's a lot to unpack there and I have some questions. Uh, No, but what what was your outreach like to get your first client when you went out as a consultant? Were you like cold calling? Like, were you on, like stalking people on LinkedIn? How did that work?
0: I was literally making phone calls to anyone that I knew was in software and saying, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee? And, you know, pounding the pavement, going office to office, just chatting about how they did things. And, um,
1: you know. That's awesome. That's uh, I, so good.
0: It, it was terrifying at the time. Yeah, I the, of course. The book I read, um, The Challenger Sale, which got me through it because it made me realize what I was doing was selling, but without being gross. Because mm. I was kind of consumed by this idea that suddenly I was a salesperson as well as a consultant. And those two worlds were a bit of a, a, a funny mix for me. So, yeah, mm. big, big growth journey.
1: The Challenger Sale. I am not familiar with that book. Brent Adamson and Dixon Matthew, according to Google, I'm definitely going to put that on the list because I haven't read it. Um, okay, so then, so you grow this consulting firm. Uh, you're doing, you know, things are going well. Um, what was the? At some point, you then decide to pivot to mm. e-learning, and 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 you, you wrote a book. You, you wrote another book, and then mm. uh, also, actually, before we do, get there, how did the publishing deal with O'Reilly come about? <laughs>
0: Oh no, Troy! Um, I could give you like the the polished version. Should we do the really formal Please, version? Give uh-huh. me the I the right, version? I went to the right. I went to the right meeting with the right person, right. and I was bold in my ideas and thinking, and they offered me a book deal. Right. What actually happened was I presented at Black Hat in 2015, which for my community is a big deal conference, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I went out with some friends, um, one of whom happened to be a uh, an editor and. Um, Uh, an agent at Mm O'Reilly and we got very very drunk in a Mexican restaurant. Literally there was a mariachi band involved Fantastic. Um, and I believe that me and one of my co-authors had some very big feelings and opinions over dinner about how wrong security was and how it could be done differently without it getting in the way and how it didn't need to lead on fear. It could be about growth and enablement and two days later I had a book offer in my inbox saying hey thanks for offering to do that. So. Um, yeah, um, uh, spoilers are never go to Mexican restaurants with book publishers. Um, <laughs> it ends badly. How,
1: how, um, how arduous was the process of writing the book? Uh,
0: it was a lot harder than I thought it would be. Um, and in fact, I promised myself I would never do it again at the end of the first book and then promptly three years later did it again. <laughs> um, so, you know, that tells you something about me or books, one or the other, um, the hardest part is is finding your voice um, in it and, and having that kind of discipline to sit down and just keep writing. Um, you know, I, I'm quite a creative person. I, I, I can switch very quickly between things. I'm quite a fluid person. I'm not the type of person who is very good at going, okay, I need to write a thousand words every day mm-hmm. and having that structure. And it took me a long time to really figure out how to get into that rhythm. Mm-hmm. Um, but once I had found it and once I'd found my confidence in it, um, I, I really enjoyed the process of writing and not just about the, like the only person who really cares about me having a book is my mom. She's incredibly yeah. proud and has no idea what it is I do for a living, but there's a book. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, it's an anchor for mm-hmm. her, um, but for me, it was just really good to crystallize what I had been doing. Mm. And then it was able to connect with this audience. And they were sending me emails back going, oh, my goodness, I needed this. Um, I've, I needed this advice in my life. We've been using this for X, Y, and Z. And that, that's been really, really great to extend from just what I was doing as a small ripple in a pond to something that was a bit, much bigger.
1: Great. What, what was the second book you wrote? Sorry.
0: Security for Everyone. Security so for it's Everyone. High- how to do security for whatever size business you are so starting from individuals up to high growth companies so whatever stage your organization is at it's a really practical guide of the basics you need to put in place to secure your organization so we expect you to have no budget no people um, that you're trying to do something big in the world in your own way um, and it's it's really a how-to guide for those in those non-enterprises who want to get started with security
1: Great. And is securityforeveryone.com, is that your domain? Uh,
0: no, um, but I can give you a link and you can share the link. That would be great. Notes.
1: We'll put a link in the show notes to the book and we'll also put a link to uh, Safestack.io, which is your current That's learning right. platform. Yeah. So, I, you know, um, I've produced a lot of e-courses, e-learning, online courses, whatever you want to call it, over the years. And I imagine, I haven't written a book, but I imagine... In a similar way, what it does is it really like a mentor said to me once: if you if you think you know something, teach it because it really forces you to identify the gaps in your knowledge, and the act of explaining it really forces you to fill in those gaps. So, um, how did you know it was the right time to pivot to an e learning platform and get out of consulting? Because I because the, the, it's a completely different business model. And Mm -hmm. I want to talk, I do want to talk about security in a moment, but I'm really sort of fascinated about this journey. Uh, It's a completely different business model. Uh, It's, 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 it's a higher, more volume. You need a lot more customers. It's a lower ticket product you're selling. Mm -hmm. What, at what point did you, were you confident to go, okay, there's enough demand here that I'm going to wind and why did you wind out of consulting and, and pivot into this, e learning business model?
0: So I'll share the the kind of the transitionary period, because I think that's probably going to answer most of what you're asking there. So we first, we'd we'd been talking about it for a long time. Like most, if you're in an agency or a consultancy or a service company, everyone has like this little bit in the back of their brain. They're like, but this is like a hamster wheel. It's doing the same thing over and over. Can I turn this into a product? And, And we've all had those thoughts from time to time. And so we had this inkling in the back that we could do this. Then COVID hit in 2020, mm. and our consultancy dropped 94% of revenue overnight. You know, it, everything rebounded. But in that moment, in that first lockdown, we had almost three months where me and my co-founder, we, you know, we were still doing some consultancy remotely, but, you know, it was a, a moment of reflection. And we we both decided it was a terrible idea to run a product company because we had young children and houses and all of those responsibilities that you're not supposed to have when you're a startup founder. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did it anyway. <laughs> um, and so we started building it in the April of 2020. We released it into market in the October. Um, and by the by the end of December, we had already passed um, 200k in recurring revenue. Um, and we were really certain at that point that we – there was something here.
1: Wow. Uh, now, now, okay, uh, how – What again, what was the outreach or the go-to-market strategy or, like, how did you get that initial cohort of – because if I'm not mistaken, I'm on the safestack.io website, right, and mm-hmm. your, um, your price point is not enterprise, right? We're talking about yeah. 100, bucks, 100 bucks a year, is that right, mm-hmm. for, for, for individuals – individual? 300 bucks a year for team so you know per learner but that's a year right so if i've got like five developers it's 1500 bucks a year to have them Mm -hmm. train right so we're not talking this is not enterprise b2b you know software where we're spending a hundred thousand dollars a year how did you get the first cohort of customers through to get enough traction to say hey we've got product market fit here
0: so I i think you know most of us find our careers are cumulative the things you've done before add up um, so a lot of the initial, particularly the initial five or six customers, was the same way as I built consultancy. I, you know, opened up my contact list and went, hey, we haven't caught up in a while. And I went and talked about what we were doing and and got people to try things out. And a lot of people are enthusiastic. And then, you know, I'd started already growing an audience through social media, through LinkedIn and things. Not particularly strategically, I will be very honest, and I'm still working Mm. on that a lot. You know, Mm -hmm. we we don't, with only three of us in the team in sales and marketing, we're teeny tiny. and so we started kind of experimenting, you know, sharing our message, sharing value. Our audience are primarily software developers who are mildly allergic to salespeople mm-hmm. and do not open cold emails. That, that's just the end of it. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So we needed to be authentically there sharing what we do, what we believe in, what the mission is. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started doing that. We did a bit of conference speaking. Um, and yeah, it's grown from there. A lot of our growth is organic. A lot is via referrals. And that's something actually we're working on now in the next 12 months is... You know, how do we reach audiences outside of this initial, um, you know, first couple of years? And that's an exciting problem to solve.
1: Great. which Hence, probably why you're here on the podcast, right? That's, exactly. That's, that's all part of it. Now, um, I do have a question. Uh, you, uh, It looks like, I'm looking at some screenshots on your website here. It looks like the community, you might be using something like Circle to host yeah. the community. Is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Awesome. Uh, and the and, and is that where all the course, where stuff no. is? Right. So we have
0: our own LMS that we've built. Originally, we we did what many companies do. We had a, a WordPress Frankenstein's monster of an mm-hmm. LMS for the first six months because mm-hmm. we just need to get it going. Yeah. Um, and then over time, we've actually replaced that with our own custom platform that does what we need. Got but it. we intentionally choose Circle for our community partner because running a community platform on top of an LMS, that's not yeah. our core specialty. No. So we use a platform that we know and love.
1: Yeah, love it. What's the security like on your learning platform?
0: <laughs> oh, it's terrible! Oh, we'll do it later. Uh, no, of course, it's great. It. We, it. you know, we we pick the problems we want to solve, and then we use experts on the rest. So, we use things like Auth Zero as our authentication provider because. But as a security company, you already have a big kick me sign on your back when oh, it comes 100%, to security. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to pick the best in breed and work with them. So Great. we solve the problems that are unique to us, and then we work with really good folks to make sure that we uh, are, are doing the security in the right ways.
1: Now I can hear virtually. <laughs> Everyone listening to this podcast saying, Troy, Laura, this is really interesting, but we're just building websites on WordPress and we're just going to plug in the security plugin or one of the standard plugins that comes in the repository and then we're done, right? Like this is not relevant to me. And uh, I would like you to debunk that myth if possible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, and I'm not going to bang on WordPress. You'll have a lot of security people who will be like, oh my God, you're using WordPress, don't do Mm -hmm. that. Look, there's a reason we all use WordPress. It's because it's incredibly versatile, because it has that ecosystem of plugins and, uh, and pieces we can use. There's a reason we do that. But the, the thing that we have to remember is a lot of your audience will be going, well, they won't attack us, we're little. They've mm-hmm. never heard of us. Mm-hmm. When you use a platform that's shared by hundreds, if not millions of other customers... The attacks stop being about you as an individual mm-hmm. and about being opportunistic for the technology you're using. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't actually matter if you've got three customers or 300 customers. An attacker is quite, let's call it cost efficient. Mm-hmm. They're going to find vulnerabilities in an attacker platform with massive bang for their buck. So if they can get 100 customers compromised, wonderful. Wonderful. That's going to be a really big payday for them. That's why you're seeing all these ransomware attacks. It's not about those companies. No. The attacker probably didn't care in advance. That's right. They just knew yeah. the technology was there and they could exploit it. Mm. Now the thing with WordPress plugins is it's amazing. You know the the selection you have, and it can be quite overwhelming to get started with. Mm-hmm. And no doubt, many of your audience have favorites. You've got a whole set that you use on everyone, and you bring them in each time, and they're mm. known. And ent- I get, I get it. I totally do. But you need to start thinking about what I call the puppy principle. And not to insult your intelligence, but it'll help you remember this later. Yeah. Think of every plugin like a new puppy. Uh, it's going to make your life really exciting when you share the results of this. It's going to be really cool. People want to see it. But every puppy, you have to look after it. So you've got to poop some, uh, you've got to do some pooping, scooping. You've got to feed the thing. You've got to look after it. Mm. Um, every single pl- uh, plugin you bring in is another puppy. So, you know, three is great and a lot of fun. Thirty- And you're actually, you know, you're basically a doggy daycare now. There's no time for fun. You're looking after stuff all day long. So you've got to make sure that every time you introduce a technology, that you have made some space in both your budget and in your time for keeping it uh, up to date. Now, in a service model, this is really challenging because, you know, we bill our customers up front. You know, I'm going to build you a lovely website. Maybe sometimes they have an ongoing maintenance contract with you but a lot of the time they don't. Maybe they come back ad hoc for for updates. Now, the trouble is that attackers are working continuously. They don't know that your brief is done and that you've delivered the end thing. They're still gonna be looking at that website. And so you have to find a way to manage those, you know, those bits of hygiene that we need to. So keeping it up to date, making sure that there's no alerts that we need to be mindful of. Make sure we change plugins if there's something that goes out of support. Um, And at the same time, we have to figure out how to do that without breaking our business model, because we've got to do it for the sites that we're still associated with. Or we need to educate our customers on how they need to do it themselves, which your customers may not be in the technical space that they can actually do that for themselves. So I see it less as a hindrance, less of a you shouldn't do this, you know, it's going to get in the way more of an opportunity for us all. If we think that delivering a high quality product to our customers uh, is what we're aiming to do then we need to accept that securing it is part of that quality. It's part of the measure of what makes you stand out. And that means factoring that into the ongoing services you provide, how you bill for them, and educating your customer as to why you're doing that Mm -hmm. and why it might impact them from time to time.
1: I think, and you're preaching to the converted here, but I think this is the interesting piece is how do you get a small business owner who – uses Chrome as a browser every day Mm -hmm. and doesn't even know that it's being updated in the background, doesn't even know that security patches are being flown in remotely because they're not even aware of it, right? How do you educate that person that, hey, you're going to have to pay whatever Mm -hmm. it is a month to make sure that your website doesn't get hacked and to make sure it's secure when on top of the hosting, which also has its own layer of security, what's the... Mm Apart from telling warning stories, which I'm a big fan of, but what's what's the what's the because it is an, it's an education process, isn't it? Mm.
0: Yeah, and for me, I, I think of it like gardening. Um, uh, gardening is much more effective if you do little bits over time. If you go and you know weed a bed each week, um, if you come back to it in a year's time, it's going to be a feral mess, mm. and nothing is going to be growing there. Mm-hmm. Looking after the security of the site is a hygiene practice. It's not necessarily about, you know, the big bad monster is coming to get you on the internet and you should feel bad. It's about saying, hey, you have this asset mm. and you need to maintain it. And that means doing a little bit of maintenance each month. Mm. Now, here's the maintenance you would need to do if you did it yourself, mm-hmm. or we can do this for you and we're going to help keep this in the best shape it can be so that it delivers the results you need. Uh, so focusing much more on the maintenance of an asset and of, of something that is so key and crucial, rather than the fear that something bad can happen. If you lead with the fear, people are going to shut you down. Mm. Um, there's so many things in the world to be scared about, especially as a small business. You know, there's 42 things that are going to kill your company. Payroll and cash flow are number one and two. Security mm-hmm. probably isn't even number 10. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere down the list. So you have to reframe it, reframe it in terms of what they care about, and that's maintaining their revenue growth, maintaining their presence, keeping track of what they've invested in and making sure it's still worth it.
1: So, you know, updating plugins and keeping your clients' websites secure is a really important part of the service that you provided. Of course, you should be charging to do this as part of your care plan. However, if you're anything like me, I get it. This is really important, but I'm not the best person to concentrate on this because, it just bores me to tears. Like, it's like doing the dishes, right? It's got to be done, but for me, it's just super, super boring. Now, I know that we're making an argument here that you should be using this as part of your growth strategy, and you should, but maybe you don't want to click the buttons. Maybe you don't want to be the one actually updating the plugins and updating WordPress and making sure that the backups are done and making sure it's secure and all that kind of stuff. So you should just delegate all of that to someone on your team. And if you don't have anyone on your team to do that, then you should be delegating it to a partner, preferably a white label partner like E2M Solutions, who yes, they are our podcast sponsor, e2msolutions.com slash agency dash mavericks. And they will just take care of all of your WordPress care plan stuff for you, completely white labeled. So you don't have to worry about it. So the job gets done. You can just concentrate on selling the value prop to your clients and using it as part of your growth strategy, like we've been talking about, but you don't have to worry about clicking the buttons and making sure the things are going into the right spot, right? You can just have... A dedicated developer at E2M Solutions do that for you. So go check out E2M Solutions, E2M Solutions, the letter E, the number two, the letter M, solutions.com slash agency-mavericks dash to get a very healthy discount on your first month and a big thank you to those guys for being the sponsor of our podcast and, of course, our MavCon live events. What about hosted platforms? Because we have a lot of Mm – and and and, you know – What's interesting is that you're talking about security for software platforms, right? So if I look at something like, you know, I mean, Squarespace are a very, very large mm-hmm. company, but if I look at some of the smaller players, like I'm I'm um, testing and experimenting and exploring some options like framer.com at the moment, which oh. is a, a CMS really designed for, it's a web hosting platform designed for design teams, So it's, you know, it's designed to be no code. Um, yep. You've got a lot of people relying on things like Zapier every day to run their business. How much trust are we putting in these companies to... To, and, and what do we know about their security vulnerabilities, right? Because we've been a WordPress shop for years and I can tell you the admin and development overhead that it's cost us, I probably yeah. could have bought another house, right, because we've been managing <laughs> and the hosting fees. And so I look at something like Framer and go, wow, it would be, it's really appealing for me to go yeah. all in and pay them 100 bucks a month to just do it and look after it. And we have this beautiful interface to manage our content. But how much trust I'm putting my company's, which is my yeah. asset, I'm putting my company's security in their hands. What What do I need to be, what are my blind spots there?
0: So uh, the way I frame it is that trusting is good, but verifying is better. And so knowing how to ask the right questions of a provider before you take that leap of faith and, and go all in with them can be really helpful. Now, there's a whole bunch of, of ways to do this. Um, many people send out little questionnaires, but there's some kind of shortcuts if we were trying to be like this quick as possible. Yeah. So firstly, ask them, do they have a security certification? So something like ISO 27000 is a good benchmark. If they've passed that, they've been audited for quite a considerable period. They've got some stuff in place. Yeah. So that's like a, a nice shortcut. Do they have ISO? Cool. Um Also, look who their other customers are, and ask for testimonials. So if they're dealing with a bank, or they're dealing with an airline, or a regulated industry, as part of the procurement process, they will have had to submit answers to security questions. Mm. So if you can talk to and verify that they genuinely have customers in those organizations, that's a good sign, if you're a smaller organization, that somebody much bigger than you has probably put them through the ringer before you. Mm. And the final set of things, you want to be talking about is the control you have. So run yourself a little experiment. So sign up for your little demo account, have a play around. You want to always ask yourself, what data is this asking from me? And where is it going to keep it? You know, is it all in one big database? Is it in a file somewhere? You know, what do I know about that? If I chose to delete something, does it really delete things? Can I get rid of stuff? If I chose to change my mind tomorrow, can I back out of this? That's always important. You should always be willing to say no to a tool especially if the terms of service change etc um, mm. and thirdly how do I control access
1: mm.
0: now if the tool is charging you per per person per year and actually you know that budget-wise you can't do that so you're all going to end up sharing an account mm-hmm. that's a big red flag because mm. um, our biggest compromises most 80% of compromises are really what we call the boring basics their account compromises, things like I had a bad password or a password that was shared with 20 people. If we can't have individual accounts on that tool so that we can, you know, if somebody leaves our company, we can Mm -hmm. take the tool access access away, then we've probably got some challenges there. So look for those three things. What data is being stored? Where is it being stored? Mm. What control do you have? Can you delete it if you change your mind? Mm -hmm. And then look at that access control piece and look for that evidence that big customers have used them before. You don't necessarily want to be the first adopter of a cutting edge technology. Uh, all the time. Sometimes mm. that can be a bit high risk.
1: Mm. In a sandbox, it's okay, right? But not, yeah. <laughs> not, not production yeah. life. Uh, yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. We just ease into the big scary stuff.
1: I'm going to ask you a very nerdy question because I've got a couple of friends of mine who are agencies but are getting into building software. And mm-hmm. I, we also use some software platforms that are built on top of things like AWS, Google Cloud. And I know that... Uh, so the question is, if a software company is saying, and I'm going to read something, I'm not going to say who the software company is, but they're going to say something like, you know, um, our our software is built on a cloud infrastructure providers such as Google Cloud and Amazon Web Services and they are ISO 27,000 <laughs> certified, so therefore we're all good. Now, right, so this was – now, for those who are not watching, Laura is vehemently <laughs> shaking, shaking head. her head. No, that no. is not okay. No. Because they're building – interfaces and apis and databases on top of that hosting infrastructure right
0: so think of aws or any of those hosting providers azure google cloud it doesn't matter they're all the same Mm -hmm. think of them like a giant lego set Mm. so yes those individual components the bricks the, the the foundation pieces are certified and aws amazon itself has good practices however you can build whatever you like out of those Lego blocks, mm-hmm. and it's only going to be opinionated in certain places. So AWS is only going to tell you in certain times not to do things. That's a silly idea. Mm-hmm. So like an infinitely big Lego set, you could build something that was a fortress mm-hmm. and it could be gloriously secure. Or equally, you could just poke holes through every bit of configuration, turn on everything, yeah. and it could be wide open. Yeah. Uh, what you choose to do with those tools affects its security. Yeah, yeah. So it's great you chose a trusted provider and that they have the ISO certification, but now you have responsibility for what you've done with that Lego set. Yeah. So unfortunately, that's where your practices come in.
1: Yeah, I'm going to give you a very practical example of this.
0: Sure.
1: Um, I had a bucket once in S3. And this is a, this is like a super dumb, super nerdy example, right? But I just want to exemplify Laura's point here for the listeners. I had a bucket in S3 once that we had a bunch of documents in and we built a, I built a prototype of a little desktop app where customers could have like a little Google Drive icon in their, in their thing and every time we uploaded a new version of our templates into the Google, into the A3 bucket, it would like ping them and go, hey, there's a new version here. And Amazon sent me an email. I mean, it wasn't them. It was one of their robots sent me an email saying, hey, this bucket has got the wrong security permissions on it. You need to actually have these permissions set at a file level, not the bucket, because the entire bucket is open for the world to do whatever they want with. Right. And at the time I'm like, well, that's right. Because I want my customers to have access to the bucket, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not going to give individual permissions to the individual things in that bucket. And I had no idea what I was doing because I was an amateur and I didn't (laughs) think it would happen to me. And luckily nothing did happen. But the point is uh, that I could keep tray I could keep doing that and have an insecure bucket. And Amazon are like, "Well, mm-hmm. this is your. We've told you it's your problem. If anything happens, not and our problem because it's on Absolutely. you." Absolutely.
0: Know? Um, I had a similar fumble. I'm happy to share mine because it might be relevant to your audience. Um, Back when we were still a consultancy and I was dabbling around in some uh, coding myself, um, I had one of those moments where you're coding at the wrong time of day, you're really tired, and um, something was left as an open source repo that should have been private, and it had an AWS key in it. Mm. And I didn't think much of it, Um, you know, just flip it over the next day, great, fine. Good. Except for in the 12 hours I was away from my desk or you know, at home with my family, some very opportunistic automated robot somewhere uh, found that key and then spun up new resources in AWS using the key and mined $3,400 worth of resources to try and get Bitcoin. Oh, and, wow. Uh, so you know this is this is Amazon. The first thing they do when you run up an ex- exciting bill like that is they charge your credit card. Yeah. But there's no like debate at that. Yes. So you know <sighs> even as a security person, we all make mistakes. Totally. We all misconfigure something from time to time. Yeah. And these can have really fast, really material impacts for little companies. Yeah. So you know not many of us can take a several thousand dollar unexpected credit card charge and just wear it. Yeah. So yeah, you've got to be careful and, and remember that every change you make you just got to think through what's the impact of this on security. Mm.
1: And this is why in software companies, like things like code reviews and security testing before we push live is so important. It's not something that is so common in the web um, space. I mean, even though we do have, you know, a good host will have it like a production server, a staging server, and then a live—you mm-hmm. know live, sorry, a development server, a staging server, and a production server. Um, but to make sure that, you know, sometimes, particularly with WordPress, for example, if you're pushing changes to your code live from staging, the database may not be synced between live and staging. And so then you've got mm-hmm. data that's interacting with that code, which may open a vulnerability uh, which you're not aware of on the, in the staging environment. So y- y- you just, I- I'm curious as to, You've said this a couple of times that you see, this is not a hindrance, but an opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. And the mindset of a lot of people listening to this, including myself is this is a massive pain in the ass. It's going to take me time, which costs me money. How do I monetize this? How do I turn this into an asset for my company? How, you know, what is the growth strategy for security? Is it... Is that we skill up and we go and find uh, we we let our clients know what we're doing for them, and we also go and find potential prospects with security vulnerabilities and reach out to them. Like, what is the growth strategy to? Well, how do we make security <laughs> a growth mechanism for us?
0: Yeah, right? well, I'm I'm going to call out that last one as ambulance chasing. We don't do that. Good people don't let other people do that. Um, so no, friends don't friend uh, try and exploit friends if they have vulnerabilities. Um, but we what we can do is firstly, it doesn't need to be this huge thing. Um, We teach a program called One Hour AppSec. It's um, it's completely free. You get a newsletter every two weeks, and the aim is you do 60 minutes of security every two weeks. That's it, just one hour. Mm. And the aim is not to try and do everything, but to try and do that minimum viable security, that little bit each time. Now, as you're building up those practices for your own organization, you can start to see which ones of those you can help a customer with. And you can articulate then why they matter because you're doing them yourself, and so building up slowly and and be able to talk about it as part of your value proposition. I I, I don't have a lot of support for organisations who try and charge it as a separate service line item. So, oh you know, have an optional security package for hundred dollars a month or whatever. Mm. Nobody's going to buy it. No. Um, But they actually, without realizing it, already assumed you were doing it. Mm -hmm. So just having the line item then often causes this jarring friction point where you go, hey, hang on, what do you mean you weren't doing that already? Mm. Um, You know, their expectation is you're providing a high quality service Mm. and that for them means keeping them safe. Mm. Um, So you've got to find a way to bring it into your core offering and to articulate it in a way that, you know, if you do have to raise your rates a little because of it, that you can explain in non-fear-driven terms why you're doing that Mm -hmm. and how, you know, don't be grand about it. Don't say, hey, we're going to do it. We've got a security operations team. We're going to be monitoring it 24-7. If you don't have that, don't do that. But if you're going to go say, well, we're going to spend two hours a month. We're going to check all of your patch levels. We're going to update things that need fixing. And we're going to just have a quick check and see if there's anything that needs changing in the world you know, that's much more pragmatic. Somebody's mm. going to see the value in that and go, oh, cool. So, yeah, that's two hours I don't have and I don't have those skills. So, yeah, sure, go do that. That's cool.
1: From a content uh, cheat point of view, which I'm always looking for a leverage point too, the, so the one-hour app sec is a free email program mm-hmm. you sign up for. You get an email every two weeks at shows you how to do, you know, one thing in 60 minutes to upgrade your security. Yep. I would be, uh, I adopt my the philosophy of my friend, Miles Beckler, who's got a great philosophy, learn, do, teach. I would learn that, I would do it, and then I would blog about it. I'd create content about it, say, hey, check this out. I just learned this, blah, 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 this is super cool. And that Absolutely. positions you as someone who knows a bit more about security than you did last week, so... Um, exactly.
0: Look, all of us, every single one of us are here doing an amazing thing, but we didn't get here by like the ray of lights shone upon us mm. and we suddenly knew how to do it. Our whole industry has massively evolved in the last 15 years. Mm. Um, I can't count the number of ways that software has changed in that time. So you know, oh no, be authentic. Share that you know. Okay, this is a, an emerging space for us. This is something we we care about. Here's what we're doing for it. Your customers are really going to be uh, impressed and probably quite connected with the idea that you see this and you're looking out for it because you then look out for them.
1: I, it would be remiss of me not to ask this question and and I'll I'm conscious of everyone's time so we'll we'll maybe finish up here but you know this could be a whole other whew, this could be a whole other two-day seminar i think how is ai <laughs> impacting the cybersecurity space
0: okay all right so um i'll i'll keep it really focused so Yes, AI is scary, but like everything's scary to a security person. Like, we're, <laughs> we're permanently in a split personality between super excited and terrified. Like, that's just my world. Um, it's not coming to take the jobs. We all know this, but it is a massive productivity boost. Mm-hmm. I think we're only just seeing the start, though, of what this will become. There's bits of law coming in Europe about AI needs to be able to explain how it made a decision. And I think all of that evolution is going to be really important to watch. So watch that space, particularly in Europe, and see how explainability comes to AI because you never want to trust a decision if you don't know how that decision was made. Mm. Uh, The other side of this is the best thing you can do is still experiment, still use it. AI is a glorious tool. I use it to construct social media posts and to write stories for my 10-year-old girl who wants a fan fiction between Harry Potter and God knows what else. ultimate bedtime stories like absolutely name your favorite characters they can be eating burgers together in a cafe in neverland uh, it's wonderful. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Life tips. I've wow. earned my value already. Well, my
1: son, Oscar, always says we, we read books at night and then I lie down with him and he always says, tell me a story from your head. And I'm like, oh, dude, like, really? It's <laughs> yeah. late. I'm tired. Uh-huh. I'm t- I never even thought about that. Dumb. Why, yeah, you yeah. Well, you. I,
0: my, I, that's why I got it because my four-year-old likes to go, Mom, I need a story that's about the Paw Patrol. It needs to have Everest and sky yep. and there needs to be a dinosaur <laughs> and a puffin. I'm like, what? What is going on here? Anywho, coming back to AI. Um, So what we need to remember, though, is it's an exciting tool. It's going to help you in lots and lots of ways. Be creative. Do play. But the most powerful, valuable thing you have is your data. Mm -hmm. So be really, really kind of conservative about what sensitive data you share with AI. And remember that AI is an evolving engine. Anything it eats, it turns into new content. Mm -hmm. So... That means that stuff you share as your prompts is could turn up in other things later. So you don't want to be sharing things that are really sensitive IP in there. You don't want to be popping things out there that you wouldn't be comfortable sharing. And you certainly don't want to put client data in there. Mm. Um, so the final bit of tip is all of your tools, every single tool you're using right now is probably updating its terms and service uh, because a lot of them are embracing AI and using your data to train the AI models. So do keep an eye out for the change of terms and conditions and make sure you're happy with that. I think Zoom got itself into a little bit of uh, hot water a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. by changing their terms and conditions. Um, so keep an eye out. Make good choices. If something has gone too far and there's too much data being shared or you don't feel like you have that control, if you remember from the three things that we're doing when we choose a tool, mm-hmm. then maybe it's time to change tools or, or slow down a bit and see how it's going.
1: Love it. Um, this has been, I must say, this has been a super interesting conversation and, uh, I didn't, I'm just scratching the surface here. You don't realize how much this plays into our everyday working life being, you know, doing what we do. Um, so thank you so much for your generosity and your time and coming on the agency, our podcast. I do want to give people a way to reach out. What is the best way for people to get started? Uh, safestack.io has a free Mm -hmm. plan. Absolutely. So you can go and start learning stuff over there for free and also the one-hour AppSec email. If you go to safestack.io, you'll see a banner up the top, uh, the one-hour AppSec. Uh, just sign up for that and, and and get started with educating yourself on security.
0: Yeah. The other thing is do feel free to link uh, LinkedIn me. So connect or follow me on LinkedIn. I'm sharing content all the time that is specifically aimed at businesses that are not huge, that just want to get something practical going. Um, And, you know, reach out, share your stories. The one thing that we need to do more in security is talk about it and not just in a doom and gloom sense, but Mm -hmm. what we're doing, what was hard, what we learned so that we can do all of this together. Mm -hmm. Because the more of us spend a little bit of time, the more powerful the change will be overall.
1: Love it. Laura Belmain. thank you for joining us on the Agency Hour podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's been fun.
1: Hey, thanks for listening to the Agency Hour podcast and a massive thanks to Laura. I seriously love your story and what you do. Truly inspiring stuff. It was great having you on the podcast and I'm glad we connected. I'm definitely going to start using ChatGPT to write my kids' stories about Octonauts and Corey Carson. Okay, folks, don't forget to subscribe and please share this with anyone who you think may need to hear it. I'm Troy Dean. Lock your doors and protect your agency.